Please be advised that the following episode of Boots on the Ground, behind South Africa's national headlines, includes descriptions of conspiracy and murder that some may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. When my father was shot 52 times with that AK-47 while arresting these bank robbers, he was only 38 years old. 38. Ten young men were bound, gagged, throats slit, shot in the head and doused with gas. I mean, that level of brutality. And then to think that that murderer could get out in 14 years is crazy. What is the point of a judge issuing the harshest sentence when in the end, this is what happens? In the eyes of justice, public opinion is irrelevant and ought to be disregarded There is absolutely no doubt that crime in South Africa is a problem and it can also be shockingly gruesome and violent. Crime states in the country are among the highest globally and some of the crimes being committed are really terrible. Let's take the case of Lee Matthews, a Bond University student who went missing from the Sentin campus on the 9th of July 2004, a day after she turned 21. 12 days after Lee's parents paid a 50,000 ransom to get their daughter back, Lee was shot three times instead of being let go. Her body had been kept in a freezer before being dumped. Her killer Donovan Moodley was sentenced to life imprisonment for murder in August 2005, 15 years for kidnapping and 10 years for the extortion charge. After serving less than 17 years of the life sentence, Moodley was entitled to make his bid for freedom. This is due to a law that affords lifers an opportunity to be considered for parole. The two notable cases that have had an impact on the minimum period to be served before one is considered for parole is the Van Furen and the Van Veek judgments. In this episode, we dive deeper into this highly contested law that could see some of South Africa's most dangerous convicted criminals on the streets again and listen to survivors and families who are being made to rehash the violence perpetrated against them in the hopes of keeping their attackers in jail. For Boots on the Ground, behind South Africa's national headlines, I am Bulelani Nonyugela. It's the case of Van Furen versus the Minister of Correctional Services and others that persuaded the Constitutional Court to make a ruling that lifers who were sentenced before the 1st of October 2004 are eligible to be considered for parole. Singaba Kongomalo, the national spokesperson of the Department of Correctional Services, says the cases are now differentiated into three systems. He gives us a background of this controversial law. When the Correctional Services Act came into existence, it detailed that people sentenced to life must serve at least 20 years before they are eligible to be considered for parole placement. But in that, there were sentence remissions which were granted two of them. There were also credits that inmates uh, will earn. As a result, it will then reduce the number of years that a lifer will have 
to spend in a correctional facility, thus becoming eligible for parole consideration. In practical terms, it meant a person sentenced to life will only then serve 12 years and four months. Then thereafter, you are eligible to be considered for parole placement. This was brought by the fact that there was an inmate with the same of who took the department to court uh, saying that um, the inmates ought to earn credits for the time that they've spent, the participation in various programs, and also their remissions that all inmates benefited f- uh, from that reduced uh, years. Then there was another inmate who again took the department to court by the name of Van Furen. So you then have what we call uh, Van Vick uh, lifers and Van Furen lifers, because it depends on which category. What is then unique with the two is that those who were then sentenced to life before 1 October 2004, they are part of the 20 years, but with the special remissions and, and credits, they then serve uh, 12 years and four months. But then the, the Correctional Services Act was amended. It then stipulated that people who are sentenced to life must serve full 25 years before they are eligible to be considered for parole. It, it then becomes quite a, a headache for a number of inmates who are serving life because they felt that now the system was being harsh on them. And one inmate by the Senate Pasha took the department to court again. The issue went all the way to the Constitutional Court, where he then said people who had committed offences before 1 October 2004, but were only sentenced after 1 October 2004, are ought to be considered or are ought to be grouped together with those who must be looked under the 20 years, uh, reduced to 12 years and four months. And Mr. Pasha won that particular case. So we now have three regimes. I know it could be confusing, but it's worth explaining it. So we now have three regimes. It's Van Vick lifers, Van Fielden lifers, and Pasha cases. Because with Pasha, it's not only people sentenced to life, but it's also other people who are sentenced to determine sentence. Because constitutional court said it is not the inmates' fault that their cases were delayed. It is the state who must take the responsibility that it delayed finalizing those cases. It also delayed issuing those sentences. Therefore, you cannot disadvantage the accused person. But families of victims and communities believe they are under threat if dangerous criminals are allowed back on the streets. They fear for their lives and do not believe people who commit serious crimes can change. Recently, Donovan Moodley applied for parole in Gauteng. He is convicted of kidnapping and murdering Liam Matthews. Lee's parents, Rob Matthews and his wife, Sharon, are not happy about this. It's normal for any parent who loses their child to be distraught, but Rob and Sharon now have to face Moodley and convince the system to keep him behind bars again. They spoke to journalists outside the Johannesburg prison and they say they do not believe Moodley has changed. The truth of the, of the matter is, 17 years later, oh, Moodley has not changed. He's still the same lying, conniving, deceitful individual. We've still got different stories now where Lee was kept. We heard another story, another story today yeah. as to how Lee's body was handled. And so that's clearly not an individual that smacks off any sign of remorse. Uh, and, and those are, you know, we, we were hoping to get some answers as to who else was involved 
overall, it's, it's been a, it's a tough day, a tiring day. In the judgment by uh, Judge Lewis Scutton, he made a comment to say that, and I can't remember the words verbatim, but he's a consummate liar. Mm. And he's a, a self-confessed self -confessed liar. Mm. And, and he carried on lying. And it was just moody what I wanted to do. So, so you question whether any of these uh, rehabilitation programs are working. I mean, are they working? Is this what progress is worth? They are not the only family dissatisfied with life as being eligible for parole after 12 years and 4 months. Lee Fisa, whose brother Warren was murdered in the Sizzler's massacre, was dismayed when she heard that her brother's killers would be considered for parole. Lee was 14 when her 23-year-old brother was slaughtered along with eight others at the Sizzler's Gay Escort Agency on the 20th of January 2003 in Cape Town. The massacre made headlines across the country and horrified the LGBTQI community. The killers Adam Roy Wust and Trevor Basil Thais were each given nine life sentences. Thais died in 2008. Fisa believes the system has failed victims and all their efforts to change the law are futile. My mother and myself met with Adam and he was completely cold. He was like a shadow. He had no emotion. He had no expression. Even when my mom sat there pleading and crying for answers, he didn't once look up. He just had this blank stare. Um, and he was this massive, huge guy, bad teeth, um, really, really scary and en enraging eyes. And it's, it's, scary to to think that a man like that was the last person with my brother and the lack of empathy that we see in Adam Wurst is very characteristic of uh, serial killers and mass murderers you know that lack of empathy and I I'm sorry I, I do not feel like he is rehabilitatable at all um, you know some some offenders are but a person who committed that level of horrendous and gruesome crime, like uh, I just don't see any way back from them. How do you come? How do you come back from a crime like that? Like how do you come back from torturing ten men, where they were praying for their lives, and your response to that was to slit their throats? You know, make them scream and pray just for, you know, to save them. How do you then turn a gun at them and shoot them? I don't know. And then, you know, to finish it off with dousing them in gas, gasoline, like, that's, that's a tortured and tormented soul that committed that crime. In my mind or in anybody's mind, you, you hear the term nine life sentences and you feel like this person is going to spend the rest of their lives in prison. However, that term nine life sentences is a false sense of comfort. It's a false sense of comfort because you automatically think that that person is going to rot in jail. But instead, what you don't understand is a life sentence is 25 years and you have the possibility of parole. But to add fuel to the fire, um, my brother's case 
falls under the von Weg judgment, which allows lifers the possibility of parole um, within 20 years and then further credits added to, to their case um, or their case files. So essentially they could get out in as little in as little as 14 years. And that's unfathomable to me. I mean, this guy that killed nine people and attempted to kill a tenth gets 14 years it, it it's just incredible like he hasn't even served one life sentence yet the death of a loved one is always distressing but to know that your brother or daughter did not just die of natural causes but was killed in the most violent manner must be beyond devastating we could also assume that you are always looking over your shoulder if you live next door to a person who has murdered someone in a gruesome way but do the communities of lifers and families of victims voices affect justice system decisions attorney julian knight of julian knight and associates which specializes in reviewing paroles answers the question although the granting of parole is is always an emotional factor and community opinion and public opinion gets quite heated one must always remember that in the eyes of justice public opinion is irrelevant and ought to be disregarded because you need to have regard to the offender, what they've done, and their rehabilitation. And in weighing up all of the expert reports that have been um, generated and conducted on the offender, the question needs to be asked, is it safe to release the person into society? And if the answer is yes, then there's no reason to detain the person further and further punish the person because they've done, they would have done their time. In our country, we recognize the principle of parole and we also recognize the rule of law and the fact that everyone is equal before the law. Since the opinion of society has no effect on the justice system, how can society be then certain that communities are safe and that ex-lifers have changed their behavior? Knight says there are assessments and factors that are considered before inmates are released on parole. Whilst a person in prison receives psychotherapy um, and treatment to rehabilitate them, they also undergo courses in anger management, so that once they are released from prison, they are able to recognize within themselves the triggers that gave rise to the commission of crime that sent them to jail in the first place. So that would then give them the skill set to be able to avoid a similar occurrence at a later stage and committing the crime again. I can't speak on behalf of all offenders. We have a prison population of 160 plus thousand prisoners, all of which are at some stage going to be considered for parole. Within that prison population, you have sexual offenders, you have murderers, you have people that have committed economic crimes. So 
each parole hearing has to evaluate the, the accused and the accused's or the offender's rehabilitation and, and make a qualified decision as to whether or not that person is safe to release back into society. The Department of Correctional Services, Singaba Konumbalo, says keeping lifers in prison forever when they have rehabilitated has no effect. We may issue these long-term sentences, but they don't deter people from committing serious crimes. And then to say, will keeping a person for a prolonged period of time in a correctional facility assist that particular person? Well, we've learned from other countries that at the end of the day, it defeats the purpose of reputation, keeping that, uh, a person for, for, for a prolonged period of time. Then it's a matter of saying, parole, what does it to achieve? Because parole placement does not mean that a sentence has ended. But South Africa has, an, uh, has a system where people serve their sentences either in correctional facilities or in communities with conditions where they are being monitored. Then the question is, do we have an efficient monitoring system once these people have been placed on parole? Do even communities where now these people are based fully understand of their responsibilities and their rights? Meaning to say, when a person has been released and you're like a caretaker to that person, do you fully understand what is expected of you? Because some uh, you go to some households, they will... Uh, reported, no, uh, this parolee has never been home for the past four days. You then ask, but why didn't you report it? Then they will just look at you, you know, giving you a sense that they were not aware or they didn't deem it fit to report that this person has has absconded because there are conditions that uh, are given to a a parolee that that person needs to abide by. And once that person has, has transgressed, then that person is no longer uh, meeting uh, those particular standards and we need to act. Either we revoke that parole placement, we take that person back, or we issue a warning or whatever uh, the consequence that uh, we may deem it fit at that particular time. So it is a perhaps a much broader public education initiative that we ought to undertake to say, uh, how do people serve their sentences and the role that the society has to play? And also, are there any gaps in the system? And you've said, yes, there are gaps because some communities will indicate that they were not even aware that they've been staying with the parolee in the area. But we then say, how to manage that so that it doesn't play into the hands of now other people becoming ostracized merely because they are parolees, because you want to build a nation where people could live together in harmony and those who are from correctional centers could be assisted to adjust and find their feet because there's a lot that they learn in correctional facilities in terms of skill, in terms of um, uh, trying to then start living a different life and become law-abiding citizens. So there is uh, quite a lot that can be done in that particular regard, but uh, we don't believe in that uh, let us keep people in correctional facilities forever and ever and decide to throw away the keys because you may not assist the purpose because people must be corrected, they must be rehabilitated, and they must be sent back to communities so that they can make a contribution. But when they are not fit, yes, you cannot release them. But um, there are classical examples where people have benefited 
from the programs that we offer. And those people have made a serious case, you know, of saying uh, the people who have served their time do deserve a second chance, provided they are willing to make a difference. But for many, the concept of rehabilitation, particularly for violent criminals, is vague. The amendments have had a devastating impact on the families of victims and sometimes the communities the lifers live in. Some fear living with the people who have committed gruesome crimes. Some say it's injustice. It seems that all those voices are futile. It's a broken system. Um, it's a system where I, we feel like they're just checking off the check marks uh, to be able to say that they've completed their tasks so that they can uh, free a prisoner onto the streets and get another prisoner in. So our prison system really has become a re- revolving door, um, th- this never-ending revolving door, um, kind of falsely rehabilitating prisoners, sending them out onto the street, getting new prisoners in, then those prisoners that they let out re-offend, so they have to come back into the system without actually solving the actual problem at hand. And I don't protest to know what all the solutions are. I mean, there's a couple of things that I've thought of that to me would be no-brainers, but I think that what we need to do as a group is just drive awareness. It is absolutely despicable that our justice system focuses on the rights of offenders, convicted murderers, over the rights of victims and victims' families. It is not fair that this vague judgment allows for criminals, convicted murderers, rapists, serious criminals, to be looked at for parole after just 12 years and four months after after committing a serious crime. I can only hope that we can evoke change. I don't know if we can. I, I, I can hope, but honestly, if I think about it, it's probably a long shot. And we've done so much petitioning and so much public outcry already. I mean, I put together a petition and it's a very public address to the president and the justice minister asking, pleading for change. Today, we haven't heard anything, nothing from the officers. All we get is a very generic statement, so public media statement drafted of three sentences that really doesn't give us any kind of information. And there's no support for our families. We have no idea where these murderers are in in the process of getting released. We, we don't have any support. There's hardly any kind of communication. The communication is so broken. When my father was shot 52 times with that AK-47 while arresting these bank robbers, he was only 38 years old. 38. He had so much life left to live, so much to still give to this world. These men, if they are released, now they will only be in their 40s my father didn't get to see his 40s if these men are released now they will still be able to make a full life for themselves my father never got to see past his 38th year he never got life 
he got a death sentence. We got a life sentence without him. These men do not deserve to come out early. They need to reap the consequences for their actions and remain in prison. Regardless of whether they are now remorseful or if there's been good behavior, to this day, DCS has not been able to answer my simple question of whether they have even admitted to the crime. All through the trial, every single one of these men just denied it. It's, it opens all our wounds all over again. And this is not justice. It's a system that favors um, the offenders within South Africa. They're very quick to, to talk about the offenders' rights. As hollow a comfort as it is for some, the justice system is assuring that necessary assessments are done before and continue when offenders are back in their communities. This is Boots on the Ground. My name is Bulelani Nonyukela. You are listening to Boots on the Ground, behind SA's national lockdown. Boots on the Ground is a short podcast series documenting South Africa's national lockdown as a result of the outbreak of COVID-19. Boots on the Ground is a true piece of mobile journalism. All interviews, voices, and sound effects have been gathered using nothing but smartphones. Boots on the Ground is a production of Multimedia Live, a division of Arena Holdings. Narration done by Samar Lutuli. Audio gathered by Graham Hoskin and Alex Patrick. Sound design and editing by Paige Muller. Production by Multimedia Head Scott Peter Smith. To catch the next episode of Boots on the Ground for free, please subscribe to the podcast on iono.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.